So last night, Brad gave a little bit of background to the Qigong. This evening, I'd like to give a little bit of background and context for the meditation. For the it's all meditation. <laughs> it's interesting to just just to, to notice and to catch how how easily the mind makes the separations. Maybe I'll speak a little bit about that this evening. <laughs> so a little bit of background for the insight meditation the the meditative aspect the mindfulness and inquiry aspect of the practice so the the practice the tradition as I'm sure you're all aware comes from the the teachings and the insights the understandings of the Buddha and the Buddha was a person who was born in um, kind of in the border area of India and Nepal about um, 2,540 some odd years ago. And the Buddha was, he wasn't the Buddha when he was born. He was, he was born as Siddhartha Gautama. That was his name. And he was born into a, a very wealthy family and his family was in fact the um, they refer to him in the commentaries they refer to his father as being the king but he was more like a, a tribal leader it wasn't really a, it wasn't a, a huge kingdom or what we think of as a as a kingdom not like um, like Great Britain <laughs> or the empire but it was a, a small a small area and, and and the Buddhist father was the the head of this area so he referred to as the king. But whatever the position, he he was born into tremendous wealth, and um, the wealth is is described. The Buddha the the Buddha speaks of having a different palace for each season, and of having the finest silk clothing, and of having the the finest food, and having um, flowers everywhere, and just lots of beauty around, and lots of servants, and, and in fact he. He, he said that even the servants wore fine clothing, which is very unusual. So if, if the servants were wearing fine clothing, you can imagine what, what the family was wearing. Um, and just everything that could possibly be wanted, everything that could possibly be had, everything materially, the Buddha had as, as, as he was growing up. And and with all this, with all the wealth and all all the luxury, um, Siddhartha Gautama realized that even with all this, there was something within his being that just wasn't at rest, just wasn't satisfied. All he, all of this didn't give him a sense of of inner satisfaction, a sense of, of real inner inner peace. And I think probably a lot of us. Can, can relate to that um, the the amount of material good the material things that we have and and the, the relative to to much of the world the wealth that we have and uh, I think we can recognize that that even with that there is a, a dissatisfaction we can we can see to to some extent that that the material things don't really satisfy us don't really bring us a sense of inner peace. 
And so Siddhartha recognized this and, and started kind of questioning his life. And it, it said that when, it's recorded in the text, that when the Buddha was born, uh, a wise man from the east came and uh, he actually followed a star. It's in the text, he followed a star and, and came to where the Buddha was born. And uh, he came to the family and he, he looked at the Buddha and he, he burst out crying. And, um, and, and, and the Buddha's father recognized this wise man and he said, what's wrong? He recognized him as a, as a wise, um, revered, holy person. He said, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And, and um, Asita, the, this man, said that um, one of two things was going to happen with this child. Either he was going to become a great king and, and lead this, this kingdom to great things, or he was going to renounce the kingdom and become a great holy person. And the, uh, the Buddha's father um, wasn't pleased with the second prospect. <laughs> he, of course, wanted the Buddha to go up and inherit the kingdom and continue the family lineage and, and so on. And so the, the Buddha's father made it a point of, of um, protecting or hiding the Buddha from anything unpleasant. He wanted the Buddha to be conditioned by the pleasures of the royal life so that he would be tempted to stay that way, to stay with the, uh, the, the, the life of wealth and luxury and power. And um, as so often happens when parents try to control their children, the child rebelled. <laughs> and the uh, the child, um, as he grew up, he started leaning in the other direction. Uh, he saw the unsatisfactoriness of all of this. And then it's, it's recorded that he became curious, um, I guess because the, the, his father had been kind of keeping him confined to the palace and keeping him confined to everything beautiful and luxurious. Um, at some point, the Buddha kind of became curious about how do the other people live? What, what, what happens outside the walls of the palace? And he convinced his attendant to take him out of the palace one night so that he could see what, what was going on. And the, he got in the chariot and the attendant took him out through the street and he saw, apparently for the first time in his life, he saw an old person. And he looked at this person and he said to his attendant, what's that? And the attendant said, that's an old person. And the uh, Buddha said, what's an old person? He said, well, that's what happens to everybody. Everybody gets old and gets all wrinkled and dried out and kind of hunched over and, uh, and looks like that. And, and, and the attendant said, even you will get like that. And, and this kind of threw the Buddha and he had never considered this possibility and um, he kind of kind of shook him a little bit and they went back to the palace and then another night the Buddha went out again with his attendant and saw a sick person and apparently again for the first time in his life he saw a sick person and um, and he said to his attendant what's that and the attendant said that that's a sick person everybody gets sick and he told him about sickness and again, the Buddha was 
oh, is confronted with this, this likelihood, this, um, particularly I would guess in the culture at that time, and still in that part of the world at this time, the probability of sickness. And then even in, in, in the West here with all our luxuries and all our supports and all our medical care, still there's not very many people who go through a lifetime without getting sick. And so back to the palace and Buddha was pondering this and went out a third time and on a third occasion the Buddha saw a dead person. And he said to his attendant, what's that? And the attendant explained death to him and told him this is what happens to everyone. Everyone comes to the end of their life and they die. And put on the fire and cremated and <laughs> and um, and the attendant said, "You too will die." And this really got the Buddha. And um, and he um, and I guess as, as a result of this, he really started questioning, "Well, what what is life? What's the point of all this? If I'm just going to get old, get sick, and die?" And and really questioning his life. And then on a fourth occasion. He had his attendant take him out, and on the fourth occasion, he saw a sadhu. And those who have been to India are familiar with sadhus. And sadhus are renunciants, people who have left their home life, left their family life, and embarked on a spiritual quest. And so the Buddha saw a sadhu, and his attendant explained to him what a sadhu is. And the Buddha then and there made the determination to leave the palace, to renounce his inheritance, and to go on a quest to to see if he could find a way of, of living in the world completely free from this inner dissatisfaction that he had experienced in relation to the life of luxury, and completely free from the dissatisfaction that he experienced in relation to the prospect of old age, sickness, and death. So, as I, as I mentioned um, on Friday evening, the, the term in, in Pali for this, this dissatisfaction is dukkha. And so the, the Buddha recognized the dukkha in his life. He recognized his dukkha, and he made a determination to see if he could find a way of living free from that to be completely free from that inner dissatisfaction, that inner restlessness, the inner conflict with life. And so he left the palace and he um, left his family behind, left his inheritance, um, shaved off his hair as a, as a symbol of his, his renunciation, and um, gave his clothes to his attendant and gave his horse to his attendant and said, go back to the palace, I'm off. And he, uh, he put on rags, he, he started wearing rags and he, he went to, um, he, he started wandering and I guess he met different sadhus and found out about their life and he went to various teachers and with each teacher he, he got to the point where the teacher would say, You've got it, you've understood everything, you know everything, sit down beside me and teach with me. And in each case, 
the the Buddha the Buddha would look within himself and he he would recognize that there was still this dukkha. He was still experiencing dukkha. There still was something in his being that wasn't completely at ease and at peace. And so he left the teachers and he um, and he determined to to explore and to investigate, to inquire into life and to to see what understanding he could come to, or what understanding would come to him. And so after a number of years of, um, of, of practice, he, he came to a point where he, he took on um, the practices which were very common at the time and which are still very common, and it's, it's a, a practices of basically of, of denial of the body and denial of self, and the practices involved um, things like going long periods without sleep, going long periods of standing up, going long periods of intense fasting, um, really harsh treatment of the body, and and the theory was, and, and still is, that this harsh treatment and this denial of the body will in some way bring about some kind of a, a purification that will lead to liberation from the, the, the mundane life. And so the Buddha did all these practices, and he, and particularly the fasting, and we see the, um, we see statues of the Buddha at this phase of his life, and it's just a skeleton with some skin on it, and there's flesh covering the skeleton. And, and the Buddha said he got to the point where to touch his belly, was the same as to touch his back. And to touch his back was the same as touching his belly. He was so thin. And um, and he, he finally he got to a point where he was doing this fasting, doing these extreme practices, and doing his meditation, and he, he had a, a kind of an awakening. <laughs> and his, his awakening was that, um, that all he was really getting from this was sick. <laughs> He was just getting very unhealthy, and he and he was and he just didn't have the strength to continue with his inquiry, with his investigation, with his meditation. And so, from the the realization of the the unsatisfactoriness of the life of luxury, and the recognition of the unsatisfactoriness of the life of denial, he kind of came to the idea of a middle path. A middle path being a path of, of balance. And so he began eating in order to get his strength back, and he got to a point where there was enough strength that he was able to, to really make a determination, okay, now I'm really going to resolve these issues of, of dukkha, of stress, of struggle, of, of tension, of conflict, particularly the, the inner conflict. And so he sat down under a tree and he came to the determination that he was not going to leave that spot until he could truly say that he was free, that he had ended this dukkha. And the, the texts record that he sat over the period of the night. And, and through the night came to a number of realizations, a number of insights, and 
understanding that by morning he was able to say with full confidence that he was completely free. And so the 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 Buddha and, and it's actually at that point that Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha. And the word Buddha means the awakened one. So the Buddha is the awakened one, the one who is awakened to the to the to his to the, to the meaning of life, awakened to an understanding of the nature of life, the nature of things, the nature of himself. And with this understanding, he was able to say that Dukkha had completely ended. And so with this, the Buddha, the Buddha presents us with um, a kind of a model, a kind of a model um, first of all, of a possibility, a possibility of being free of the distresses, the anxieties, the conflicts that we experience in life. And he also presented us with a model for coming to this understanding, for coming to this, or having this come to us, this liberation of mind and heart. And he summed up his he summed up his um, his insight, his understanding, his liberation in four statements. And I'm, I'm sure many, most, maybe even all of you are, are familiar with these statements. The um, the first one, and, and the statements seem very simple and, and rather obvious, but at the same time are quite profound. And his first statement was simply in life we experience dukkha. Just, just a very simple statement, but very profound in that for the Buddha it was a full acknowledgement that yes, in life there is dukkha. And an acknowledgement in a way that there's really, there was really an opening, an opening to the fact of dukkha and to the actual experience of dukkha. An acknowledgement in a way that there's a, there's a knowing that it can't just be pushed aside or just be hidden away or be covered over. And, and, in, and in this first statement, the Buddha is really calling to us to acknowledge this, to acknowledge the fact of dukkha in our lives. And I would, I would be willing to bet that on some level each one of us here is here because on some level we have acknowledged that. We're here because on some level we have known, we know from our own experience what the Buddha referred to as the first noble truth the truth of dukkha. And from the knowing of that, from the knowing of that and from opening to that, opening to that, to some degree, comes the wish to end it. And with that, I, I, w- I would be willing to guess that from the fact that you're here and still here after two days, um, some degree of trust, 
and confidence in the possibility. So the first noble truth is this, this realization of the fact of dukkha in life and the opening to that. The second noble truth has to do with the cause of dukkha. The Buddha, the Buddha recognized that yes, there's dukkha, and he, and then with that comes the wish to end it, and then the realization that if I really want to bring it to an end, then I have to know what's causing it. If I understand what the cause of dukkha is, then there's the chance of ending it. If I don't know the cause, then it's not so likely to be able to end it. It's kind of like um, when you're out in the garden, out, out gardening, and you've got a garden full of more weeds than veggies, and you start weeding. If you just pull off the tops of the weeds, they'll just keep coming back. So if you really understand that there's a, there's a cause for that, there's a root, and if you can uproot the weed, pull it up completely by the root, then it's ended. It doesn't come back. And so the, so the, the, so the Buddha started examining, inquiring into dukkha, which, which really requires opening and allowing the dukkha to show. It's um, kind of a, a, a peculiar thing that's it's so common in the uh, in, in the meditation. We 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 experience the dukkha arising. We experience the the unsatisfactoriness, the stress, the suffering, and the thought comes. I want to I want to get rid of it. And and in the very the very wanting is is, is kind of a, a bit of a conundrum because in the in the in the wanting to get rid of it, then we start doing things sometimes obviously and sometimes very subtle. We start doing things to try and get rid of it, or to try and make it better. If we really want to bring it to an end, then we have to understand the cause. And to understand the cause means we have to really open to it, allow the dukkha to really show itself, and really be present with it, and really explore it, really examine it. If we're trying to make it different, if we're trying to get rid of it, if we're trying to make it change, make it better, then we can't come to understand it. And and so the the practice as we've been presenting it, the meditation is, is very much one of opening to the experience that shows. Whether it's with the breath, just allowing the breath to be as it is, not controlling it not trying to make it a certain way, not trying to change, just to open to it as it is. This morning I spoke about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Just opening to it, opening to the experience as it is. And, and in this opening is the possibility of really coming to understand, coming to understanding, to insight. And so the, the second noble truth is saying, open to the dukkha. Find the cause of it. And the Buddha goes on in the second noble truth and he actually identifies what he recognized as the cause. 
And for the Buddha, what he said was the cause, or what he said is the cause, the cause of dukkha is craving and clinging. The cause of dukkha is craving and clinging. Now this is um, this is a, a very, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a rather simple statement, but again, it's, it's a very profound statement, and it's, it's quite a, a radical statement, because when we, when we look at our suffering, and we look at the cause of suffering, when we, when we look at unsatisfactoriness in our life, and, and, and start to look at, well, what's, what's the cause of this unsatisfactoriness? Our, our general tendency is to point the finger out there. Do you notice that? When we're experiencing something uncomfortable, unpleasant, unsatisfactory in our life, we look for a cause out there. And the cause could be another person. It could be um, not quite the right shape of meditation cushion. It could be um, not quite the right food or the right weather or um, the right job or the right all kinds of things. And we find a cause out there. And, and, and if the cause is out there, then it means that the only way to get rid of the dukkha is to get rid of what's out there. And we can't always do that. Very rare that we can do that. So we have this tendency to, to point out there. And I'll come back to this a little bit. The other thing that we do is that we, we tend to do is we point the finger in here. And I'm the cause. It's my fault. I'm to blame. I'm doing it. I'm, I should be doing it differently. I should be better. Um, something wrong with me. I've got to change myself. I've got to make myself better. I've got to become more perfect. I have to get enlightened. So we point the finger and we try to identify a certain, a specific cause, either out there or here, and then think, okay, if I can just change that, then the dukkha will end. But this, this statement of the of the Buddha that the that the dukkha, the cause of dukkha, is in the craving and the clinging, the holding on, is is quite radical because what he's what the what the Buddha is pointing to is not what's out there or what's in here, but the relationship. The relationship. When the relationship is one of craving and clinging, then dukkha arises with that. The, um, the, the other side of the coin with craving and clinging is aversion, pushing away, not wanting. And so, as I, as I mentioned the other, the other evening, basically what the Buddha came down to as, as a definition of, of dukkha in a, in a one-liner is dukkha is wanting something to be different than it is. Actually, he said, um, in the longer form, he said, uh, he said um, birth is dukkha, old age is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, dying is dukkha, Separation from what we love is dukkha. Not getting what we want is dukkha. And getting what we don't want is dukkha. And, and in all of these cases, it's 
generally things that we just don't like and we'd like them to be different. We don't want to get old, we don't want to get sick, we don't want to die, we don't, we, we don't want to get what we don't want. We don't, we don't want to not get what we want. So all these, all these situations, we'd like to change them. And in that wanting them to be different, in that relationship, is the dukkha. And so the Buddha, the Buddha came to this realization that, that the cause of dukkha is the clinging. And in, in seeing that, in, in seeing that, in, in, in very directly experiencing that, experiencing the dukkha of holding, of clinging, for the Buddha came a releasing. And the releasing for the Buddha was the ending of the dukkha. And so it's, it's kind of like um, if we if we pick up something very hot, something too hot, there's an immediate recognition of the dukkha and an immediate letting go. We don't stand around thinking, is this too hot? Should I, what can I, how can I let go? How do I let go? What do I let go of? What can I do about this? In the knowing of the dukkha is the letting go. And so the, so the, coming back to the first noble truth, the opening to the dukkha. Opening to the dukkha in, in a way that it's really known as dukkha. It's really known. And the clinging, the, the holding is seen so clearly as the cause that it just let go. And so the letting go isn't something that we do. It's an undoing. Very important. The letting go is an undoing. It's an undoing of the holding. Buddha, a wonderful phrase that the, the Buddha used, a wonderful line, he said, see how letting go is peacefulness. The letting go is peacefulness. It's not doing something else. It's not throwing away what's unsatisfactory. It's not getting rid of it, it's simply letting go, being at peace. So craving is the cause of clinging. So how does craving, how does clinging arise? Why do we hold on to something? Why do we try to push away something, anything? To a very large extent, we, we hold on to things and we push away things, as I, as I spoke of this morning in the instructions, because of the feeling quality. The feeling quality. So the, the feeling quality, and in the, in, the, in the Buddhist language, the word feeling, feelings, refers not to emotional states or mind states as we usually use it, but it refers simply to the qualities of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So the, the term feeling is, is just these, these three qualities. 
Now the Buddha frequently said there are three kinds of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So with, with every contact we have through our sense doors, whenever we contact something through our sense doors, whether we see something or hear something or taste something or smell something or touch something or think about something, with any of those contacts, one of these three feelings will always arise. Much of the time, the feeling is neutral, and, and when that happens, we can easily think there's no feeling. So, so if, you, if you start looking for the feeling, what's, what's the feeling in a contact, or what's the sensation in the body, if you have to kind of think about it and try and figure out what's the feeling, probably it's neutral. If it's pleasant or unpleasant, usually we can sense that. And if we have to try and figure it out, it's probably neutral. But one of these three feelings will always show up. And the feeling, so when, so we make a contact, so, so we, we hear a sound, I, I hear a sound, and in that contact of the, the sound vibration hitting the eardrum, in that contact, the feeling arises. Pleasant. Yeah, hear a sound. So I'm sitting here in the meditation hall and a sound filters in through the window and the hearing arises and pleasant. And what happens very easily, what, what, what tends to happen is as the feeling arises, the mind kind of goes out there. What's making that sound? And what's making that sound is then identified, ah, it's a bird out there in the tree. And very easily what happens is that the feeling gets associated with the bird out there in the tree. And then it's, ah, I like that. And then we start listening. Oh, I'm going to listen to that some more. It's really lovely. I hope that bird stays around and keeps singing. Much more interesting and much more pleasurable than the breath. The, the feeling gets associated with the object. Or I go for lunch and I put some food in my mouth. Mmm, tastes good. Nice, pleasant taste. Pleasant, the pleasure, the pleasant feeling arises, and the feeling gets associated with the food. And then, ah, this is good, I'd like some more of that. Hope to serve that tomorrow again, it's really good. In the contact, the feeling very easily gets associated with the object, and then the craving and the clinging arises. I want that object because I like it. It's pleasant. If it's something unpleasant, the feeling also gets associated with the object and then it's, I don't want that. I don't like that. But if we, if we look closely, I think we can probably see, and I think probably all of us have had experiences that show us this, that perhaps the feeling isn't actually in the object. 
Have you ever gone out on a nice, bright, sunny day and just thought, oh, this is wonderful. I mean, here in, here in Devon, it probably happens a lot. I mean, all of a sudden, the, the, the clouds part and the rain stops and the sun comes out and you just go, oh, it's wonderful just to be out in the sun and just feel the warmth of the sun. And then you go to maybe to Goa or to Morocco or somewhere and you you go out and you stand in the sun and say, oh, this is really hot. It's not pleasant at all. It's the same sun. In one set of conditions, it's pleasant. In another set of conditions, it's unpleasant. It's the same sun. Perhaps have an experience. We have experiences with partners. <laughs> Sometimes in our relationship to our partners, very pleasant, very enjoyable, great ease, lovely. And at other times, <laughs> just want to flee, you want to get away, or you want your partner to get away. And the unpleasantness comes. Same partner. Something in the conditions brings out a different feeling. The feeling is in the contact. It's in the coming together and all the conditions that come together in that moment. I once had a, a in India, had a, a, I think this is the example of it that has struck me the most of, of anything. I once um, went into a chai shop and ordered a, a cup of chai and a, and a samosa. And um, the chai shop was being run by a woman, and this woman had the most beautiful, long, black, shiny hair. It was like her hair wasn't tied back, it was just hanging loose, and it looked like she had just washed and oiled it. And it was just so beautiful, and I was sitting there just admiring her beautiful hair and um, bit into my samosa. <laughs> uh, the feeling changed very quickly. <laughs> and, and, and it really caught me. Here's the hair here, and it's very, so pleasant. There's so much pleasure with that hair. Here it is here, and it's so much unpleasant. It's the same hair. <laughs> Where's the feeling? Where's the feeling? The feeling can't be in the object. If it was in the object itself, it would always be the same. But we can see that feelings about an object and feelings towards an object change. How about our computers? <laughs> A computer, sometimes it's so wonderful, it's just such a pleasure to use it, and just so it's just amazing things. And then other times it just doesn't want to do what you want it to do. It's just so unpleasant. <laughs> Get rid of this thing. So the, we, can, we can see that the, the feelings change. So we can see that the feelings aren't really in the object. And the more clearly we can know this, the more we can really open to our experience and open to the feeling quality and really settle with it and, and kind of allow that 
to, to sink into our being so that it really comes out of our experience that it's not about feeling. We can let go of that, or a letting go happens. A letting go happens of the association of the feeling with the object. And in that letting go, there's a letting go of the object. We can see that the the dukkha isn't in the object, and it's equally not in me. It's in it's in just in the way the conditions come together. The way the conditions and, and and of course one of the conditions, an important condition, is memory. We can see how, how memory is a very strong influence on our feelings. We can we can have a, a feeling about something just by thinking about it because of past experiences. We can we can see something and just immediately there's there's an unpleasant feeling because of some past experience or a pleasant a pleasant feeling because of some past experience and 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 the feeling may have absolutely nothing to do with right now but the memory the impact of the memory can be so strong that the feeling kind of overtakes. Gets associated with the object in the present, and is unpleasant. I don't want it. Keep it away. We can see this happening. We notice this happening with people. You meet someone who you've had some bad, some bad experience with in the past, and you see them on the street, and you just want to cross the street and avoid that person. It's got nothing to do with right now. But the impact of memory is so strong that the memory generates the feeling. And so, so to, to recognize how strongly conditioned the feeling is by so many different factors. And to see how the feeling gives rise to the craving, the clinging, and the aversion. Not just to see it, but to really deeply know it from experience. And with that, just the ah. Don't need to hold on to this. Doesn't need to be held on to. The holding causes the dukkha. And to just know that and just to be able to have the letting go happen in a way that the dukkha comes to an end. And then of course it comes back in relation to another object and another object, and another object. And, and this is where the, the, the separation, one, one aspect of the separation is that we divide the world into all these separate objects, whether they're material objects, non-material objects, people, situations, whatever. We divide it into all these different things of the world, and it's like we have to deal with each thing individually. Each thing that comes along, we have to deal with. The the, the Buddha said, um, "Grasping is grasping. It makes no difference what the object is." And so, if we can again bring the attention to the grasping as the cause 
of the object, then it doesn't matter what the object is. It doesn't matter what comes to us. It doesn't matter what we meet with. We recognize the grasping as the dukkha. And again, it's the possibility of the letting go and the ending of the dukkha, which is the third noble truth. The ending of the dukkha, coming out of the awakening to the fact of dukkha and the cause of dukkha. And then the fourth noble truth is the path that the Buddha outlined. After after his awakening, after his own awakening, his own enlightenment, he spent several weeks around this tree, sitting and walking and reflecting and gazing and, and just spending time around the tree, just reflecting on what had brought him to this understanding. And he, and he formulated what he referred to as the Eightfold Noble Path. So a path with eight parts to it, and I'm not going to go into that tonight, but the one, one part of the path is the meditation, the mindfulness, the calmness, the, the, the wise use of effort to come back, to be steady, to open to what is. And the Buddha, the Buddha presented this as a path to support the unfolding of the awakening. So in the practice, in the, in the meditation, and in the Qigong, whether we're sitting, standing, walking, moving, not moving, opening to what is, opening to what is in a way that there's the possibility of recognizing where the holding, where the aversion is. Recognizing how that's giving rise to dukkha. And in that, just to allow for the letting go to happen. And seeing how letting go is usefulness. Quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.